All right. So, uh, <laughs> yes, let's all give Andy a round of applause. If you have any idea how impossible it was to film with him. So, uh, if you guys uh, liked that, uh, and hopefully you did, my plan is to uh, do a video skit to introduce each one of these uh, rules each and every single week, and so I'm definitely going to need your help. Uh, I've already talked with some of you about uh, next Sundays, but if you are interested, uh, please reach out to me and we will try to set something up. I don't have a plan right now for all of these skits yet, so uh, I will try to brainstorm as best I can and we'll try to work something out. For those of you listening on podcasts who have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, I plan on uh, releasing all these videos online so that you guys can see to kind of introduce what we're going to be talking about because today on your outline we are studying rule number one of how to study the Bible, the context factor. Before we actually dive into this, though, uh, and I probably should have put a note out in the group me to ask you guys to do this, but does anybody happen to have your study sheet from last week with you? Go ahead and pull it out. Pull it out. Because I had asked you guys a question, two questions actually last week, to kind of do a little bit of self-reflection, self-inspection in the form of, a, of a, I guess, a grading of yourself as far as your love and your passion and pursuit for Jesus Christ. We started off last week's lesson with looking at that in our introduction to this entire class as far as how would you grade yourself? How would you rate yourself as far as your passion and your pursuit in your walk with God? How much do you love Him? And then we went through last week talking about how you cannot separate the Lord Jesus Christ from His words. The two are inseparable. What is the living word, Christ, is also the written word of the Bible. And here's an old adage that we, we've kind of inherited from Pastor Rory, Stephen's dad, that how you treat this book is how you treat Christ Himself. So an evaluation of the last seven days... How have you treated your Lord and Savior? Did he sit on your nightstand? Was he buried in your book bag? Did he get a chance to say anything to you at all? Or was it a one-sided conversation and prayers all week? Sometimes my life can be like that. And we ended last week with, as we kind of worked through this whole thing of God and His words not being separated... I asked you guys to rate yourself. How would you rate your love and your passion for God's Word? What you should have found, actually, anybody care to share any of their findings? When you had a time for self-inspection, what was it you noticed about that? Hopefully you found that the two numbers were synonymous. If I did my job properly last week with teaching that... But if you found yourself that maybe your love and desire for God's Word is less than your love and desire for Christ Himself, well, then you might want to go back and reread some of those passages. But if you found that your love for the Word of God was higher than your love for Jesus Christ, then again, not only go back and reread some of those verses, go back over that lesson, maybe re-listen on the podcast, but also consider the fact that you might be reading your Bible for the wrong reasons. If you rate your desire and your love for God's Word more than your love and desire for Jesus Christ, you might be, I want to present this as a challenge to you, you might just be reading your Bible for head knowledge, just to amass more information. And that's what a lot of Christians do, especially the longer you've been saved. This is something that's been a struggle for me the longer that I've been walking with God. 
you know, and even going through the Bible and students, I know some of you want to do as you get older, it can be very easy for you to just start amassing all of this information. And if you're not careful, this class can do that as well. Where you amass all of this information and you forget the fact that this is about a love relationship between me and my blessed Lord who saved my soul. It's not just that He wants to reveal new truths to me or hidden secret passages that were before a mystery to me. No. He wants you to know Him more so that you can love Him more. So that you can talk deeper in prayer with Him more. So you can do more for Him. It's all about Him and your relationship with Him. So as we begin number one today, keep that in mind. Don't let this stuff be information to you and don't let it be something to just weaponize yourself even further to, that you now have a key to unlocking further Bible study just to puff up your head more. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, that knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. If any man love God, the same is known of him. What's your testimony like here? Do people know you as someone who loves God? What's your testimony like at home? Do your parents and your siblings know that you love God? What's your testimony like at school? Do they know that you love God? It's going to be evidenced by how much time and what is God speaking to you through this book. Because God, or God and His words cannot be separated. Alright, point number one on your outline. Rule number one of how to study the Bible, the context factor. And right below that, the context factor states this. That the context of a passage must always be considered to determine its proper meaning. As you guys just saw from that video or hopefully, if the message came across right, can things not be taken drastically out of context? Has your words ever been taken out of context from somebody, especially in a text message or in an email where somebody reads something into it that's not there, or maybe you yourself read something into a message you received that's not there? How did it make you feel when that happened to you? Did it feel great? Did it go completely wrong? Did you guys lose any friendships or almost lose friendships as a result of it? Anybody have any stories you want to share regarding that? Every message Corey ever sends me. Every, yeah, that's probably true. No. If you don't like it when that happens to you, how do you think God feels when it happens to Him? There's a reason why this is the first rule of how to study the Bible, because this is probably the one that is broken the most in Christianity today. There are a lot of false teachings in the church, and in a lot of places that claim to be the church, there are a lot of false teachings that occur because people don't take God's Word in its proper context. They are always twisting it and taking it out. Look at some of the verses we have on your outline here. Psalm 56, 5, God is saying, every day they rest my words. Anybody want to take a shot in the dark as to what that word means? Rest. W-R-E-S-T. Megan? Yeah. Think of, what word does that remind you of when you see it written like that? Wrestle. Add an L and an E at the end of it. To wrestle. What happens in wrestling? 
You are to take your opponent and you are twisting him and contorting him or her in today's day and age, I guess. You're twisting them in order to get them down on the ground so that you have control, so that you have dominated over them. God is saying that people are doing that with his Bible, with his words. How often? That wasn't rhetorical. Every day. Look at 2 Peter 3. This is in the New Testament. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. I love that verse, because you know what? When you're studying and reading your Bible, there are verses that are hard to be understood. Peter himself even said that about things that Paul wrote. So if you feel that way when you're reading your Bible, you're in good company because Peter himself thought that. But keep reading. He goes, which they that are unlearned and unstable. You might be unlearned. That's why we're having this class. But don't be unstable. He's describing pastors today who do what he's about to say. They that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures. Look at the end result there. Under their own destruction. When you take God's word out of context, it is to your own detriment. And many of these pastors in churches today, in Christianity today, they don't realize that. And as we're going to see here from a couple of verses, you see what the end result is. So look at the definition on your outline here. Break it down. This is why I love the English language. You can split it up and you get the definition with it. Anybody know what con means? Anybody here take a, a rudimentary Spanish class? Sammy? Uh, actually, uh, I'm thinking more Spanish. Because I know Latin kind of goes with... Uh, wait, actually, you're not too far off there. It's like con and com together. Con and com? I didn't know that. So yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. The word I'm actually looking for for your blank is... With. With, <coughs> with or together... And then what's text? Text. What are you doing when you text someone? You're putting down words. Thank you. Awesome. I am this close to having you guys all stand up and do jumping jacks. Do it. Do it. You don't have to. No, they're actually pretty alert today. They actually are. So maybe I'll save it for when I start seeing some droopy eyes. They're actually pretty good today. So context means with words. But here's how Webster defines it. The parts of a discourse which precede or follow the sentence quoted. The passage of Scripture, which are near the text, either before it or after it. I hope from that definition you guys see why we always go to Webster's uh, dictionary. He based all of the words in his dictionary based upon how does God use them in the Bible. I love it. And he even gives examples for it. Now, with that definition... How do we transfer it into our Bible reading and studying? Here's how it goes. There's three different components of considering the context when you're reading and studying. Number one, you have the near context. It's the preceding and following verses, passages, and chapters. I'll tell you guys what, if there's a verse that you read that is of the most confuse, utmost confusion to you, I would be willing to bet 75 to 80% of the times, if you just read a couple verses before and a couple verses after it, you'll have the answer as to whatever is ailing you in the confusion. That's the near context. Just look a few verses before, look a few verses after. Sometimes 
you have to check out the chapter before and the chapter after. We'll see examples of that today. It'll help your understanding of it. Number two, the second type of context is called remote context. This one gets a little bit trickier. It's the theme of the book the verse is in, the verse that you're struggling with. Well, if this verse is in this book, what's the overall theme of this book? What is God trying to say through this book that I'm reading? And what is it as far as the theme of the Bible? How does this verse fit in with the theme of the whole Bible? And how the book theme fits into the overall theme of the Bible. That seems repetitive. I don't know why I put that on there. Anybody know what the theme of the Bible is? I'll give you a hint. It is not the cross. It is not your salvation. That's the biggest thing that has ever happened in your life. And your salvation is dependent upon what Christ did on the cross. But contrary to popular belief and most of Christian songs today and most of Christianity as a whole, the cross is not the central theme of the entire Bible. Write down Acts chapter 3. And actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and turn there. We got some time. Acts chapter 3. Put down... Eh, let's do 19 to 22. Those passages right there define the entire theme of the Bible. Is anybody there? Yep. Somebody besides Andy, he got enough show time today. Yep. Jack. All right. Read. Uh, go ahead and read 20 and 21. That should do it. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which was before, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. I should have had you read verse 19 too. Verse 19, uh, he's saying, Repent ye therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the when? Presence of the Lord. So Jack read the restitution of all things. We just read in verse 19, the refreshing that the times of refreshing that shall come and the restitution of all things and the refreshing of these times, they both trigger and they both come together at one specific moment in time, the presence of the Lord. When Christ comes back and he sits on his throne in Jerusalem and he rules and reigns as king and as God. The second coming, essentially, because that's when everything that was lost will be restored. The restitution of all things. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. Everything will be made right. Everything will be just exactly as God intended it before the fall. That's the theme of the entire Bible. To put it simply, the king and his kingdom. That is the theme of every single book of the Bible. Check it. So sometimes a verse you're looking at, you need to consider how does this verse that has me hung up, how does it fit into the overall theme, not only of the book I'm reading, but the overall theme of the Bible? And lastly, number three, as far as context is concerned, you need to consider other contextual details. 
That contains information from history and culture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. More on that in the weeks to come. Dispensations. More on that two weeks to come. And the three applications. More on that four weeks to come. So check it out, this little brief note here. Every word, verse, passage, chapter, and book in the Bible must be understood in the light of the other words, verses, passages, chapters, and books surrounding it. Failing to interpret the scriptures without properly understanding the context can lead to a multitude of doctrinal errors. Just as someone misunderstanding your text can lead to a tremendous fallout and someone getting drastically hurt with a five millimeter. Inside joke, sorry, for those of you listening online who weren't here. Other context, or context examples. All right, let's dive into this. Let's see how this applies. Turn over to Matthew chapter seven. I understand that some of you guys uh, in here, especially you older guys, you have taken this class before. Uh, there are certain things that I wanted to tweak and change up and add different verses and passages that you know, keep it fresh for you. Keep it so as you don't have all the answers down in your Bible if you have your notes still saved from before. Uh, this is one of the changes that I made, one of the things that I've added in in order to help you guys out. Matthew chapter 7. Can I get a reader for verses 1 and 2? All right, Andy. OB. Yeah, your hand was raised, and I said, all right, Andy. Was there a confusion in that? Did you consider the context of what I said? That's what I wanted you to do. Okay. Oh, oh, that was good. We didn't plan that. Judge not that ye be not judged, for with, that, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. You realize that the two verses we just looked at are some of the most misunderstood and misquoted and most taken out of context verses in the entire Bible. You've probably heard this said from many of your friends at school. When you try to call out sin, when you present the gospel and you can't present the gospel without talking about man's unrighteousness like we did Wednesday night. Chapter 1 of Romans presents a beautiful outline of what the gospel actually is, but how you can't just have the solution without first addressing the problem, which is where the second half of that chapter goes. The unrighteousness of man. And people, your friends will look at you and be like, who are you to judge me? Don't you know that your own Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. And they often use this verse, and again, even pastors and people in churches will use this passage out of context. This verse isn't actually talking about not judging. If we keep reading, we'll see why. Verse 3. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? Now again, this is a class you guys want to make sure you take notes. That's why you have some blank space there. Jot these things down. You guys know what a mote is? It's like a little, uh, like a, a speck of uh, dirt or like a little, specifically a twig. But you guys ever get something in your eye and you can't see properly? whether it's a, a speck of dust or whether it's dirt. That's what a mote is. He goes, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Again, they'll throw that verse out too. Keep reading. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine own eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own. Thou hypocrite, verse 5. First, cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then 
shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. You know what this passage is teaching when we consider the context? Not that you shouldn't be judging. This passage is teaching you how to judge properly. He's saying, don't judge based upon appearance and not consider yourself, not consider your own sin that you might have, and not to mention, he's talking about a brother going to a brother. This passage is not talking about you witnessing and evangelizing in your schools and calling out sin. It's talking about brother to brother. If you see somebody else in this room living or talking or acting in ways that are not becoming of a Christian because they're going to ruin their testimony, and when you go to go ask your friends to come out to church on Wednesday nights, and they're like, oh, isn't that the same church that so-and-so goes to? Why would I want to go there when I see the way they live? When you go to have a conversation with that brother or sister in Christ, you want to make sure, okay, before I talk with them, is there anything in my life that is unbecoming and a horrible testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ before I go talk to them? Because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Lord, I'm going to spend some time evaluating myself right now before I go talk with them. Can you reveal, is there anything in my life that's detrimental to my walk that I might be a castaway, I might be a hypocrite if I go and try calling them out on it? But I do need to call them out on it because it's not right the way they're living. It's not right. It's ruining your testimony. And I can't reach out to these people. That's this verse in its proper context. But so many Christians and so many lost people, because of so many Christians, just stop after verse 2 because they don't look at the context. They don't look at the verses coming right after it. We ought not to have a critical or self-righteous heart towards others. This passage is talking about what happens to those who do. You're a hypocrite. Next one, turn over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Another passage where unlearned and unstable men have rested unto their own destruction, and really the destruction of countless millions more. Somebody read verse 56. Sammy. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I am. Actually, look at verse 54 also. Go ahead and read that. Yeah. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Man, Christians are always talking about being in Christ, and Christ living and dwelling in them. So I guess I need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Gee, let me just do a Google search to see what does that mean. Oh, well, according to Google, and according to my friend who goes to church at school, it's, it's talking about communion. Because in certain churches, they teach that whenever you take that bread, it is the actual body of Christ. And when you drink of that juice, or in some cases wine, it is the actual blood of Christ. And goodness, I guess when I look it up in the Bible, it actually does say 
man, he that eateth and drinketh, eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. And I want Christ in me, so I guess I should probably go take communion. After all, it's in the Bible. That verse taken on its own, devoid from its context, has led millions, countless millions, billions, to an eternal separation from Christ, because that is not at all what Christ is getting at. So we need to look at the near context. Well, in order to do that, we don't have time, you could check it out today, but if you looked at all of chapter 6, you know what happens early on in chapter 6? Christ performs a miracle. And you know what that miracle was? Anybody want to take a guess or anybody know? He's a great object teacher. This entire chapter is about him, how he's the bread of life. And the reason why he used that is because of the miracle he did before that, which was the feeding of thousands, where he took loaves of bread and completely... Something wrong? Okay. Where he took loaves of bread and he completely multiplied it for everyone to be able to have. And as a result of that, many people were fed. Many people were seeing that, man, this guy, he has it all together. I can go to him for all of my needs. He's going to feed us. He's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of all of our temporal values. They just got a free lunch. That was all it was. And so as a result of that, he comes before them and he drops this truth bomb on them. But jump down. Let's just look at a couple verses. Here's how you'll debunk this. Look at verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, Man, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? See, again, even the disciples thought, Man, there's some words that Jesus speaks. It's hard to understand. And look what he says in verse 63. It is the what? Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Christ is telling them, hey, when I'm saying eat my flesh, drink my blood, I'm speaking spiritually. I'm not saying it literally. If there's a passage in the Bible that God does not want to be taken literally, He will tell you. And here's one such case where He says, Hey, I'm talking more of a devotional, more of a spiritual application here. Kind of like for those of you who were here back in the summer after camp, we did a, a quick message on Revelation 10 about John. He was given a book and he was to eat the book. He was to consume what was found herein and let it affect each and every single aspect of his life. That's what he's talking about here. What Christ was doing, he said those things to try to deter and get the crowd to spurs to realize, man, he doesn't just want me to come to him and he's going to give me bread every single day and take care of all my temporal needs. There's more to it than this. Man, in that case, you'll see what happens in verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They didn't want anything to do with it because they realized that, man, God expects something of me. All right, next passage. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2.
This one might be a little bit trickier. Again, we're talking about near context examples, just from looking at the verses before the verses after. Can I get a reader for verse 38? Kendall. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So, what does this verse appear to be saying? Noah. That baptism saves you. Baptism saves you. After all, this is Peter himself talking. And he says, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Man, I hear all these Christians talking about sins being forgiven. Sins being remitted. How does that happen? Quick Google search. Talk to my Christian friend at school because they don't know you. <laughs> hey, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, why don't you come to one of the biggest churches that's in Jackson Township? And you'll hear what needs to happen in order to be saved. Because one of the biggest churches in Jackson Township, this verse right here, no, the other one, this verse right here is one of their highlight verses. The only thing is, from a recent study of mine, I don't have too much time to get into this, you won't find this verse found really, really anywhere on their website anymore because they have it tucked away in one of the files and one of the pages that isn't even found on their website anymore because they've met a lot of us who go through this verse and explain the context of it and show and demonstrate that this is not at all what this verse is talking about. There are a lot of churches, even a big one in Canton, that uses this verse to say, you got to get into the tank and be dunked or sprinkled or dipped in order to have your sins forgiven you. That's the only way you get the Holy Spirit. That's what they say. So, let's consider the context. This is not talking about what is needed for New Testament salvation. How do we know that? Well, let's look over at verse... Oh, boy. Where's a good one to start at? Look at verse 4. Speaking of the apostles, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling, verse 5, at Jerusalem... Who? Jews. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. Don't worry about the tongues thing. We'll get to that later. Or in another week. So there's all of these Jews. And then you jump down to, it talks about all these cities in verses 9 and 10. And verse 11, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues and wonderful works of God. And they, verse 12, who are the they? Jews. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are now are full of new wine. Verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of where? Judea. And all ye that dwell at where? Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken. So he sets the stage in the context of who is present when Peter begins preaching this awesome message. And he goes through, and he goes through all of the Old Testament, uh, just like we talked on Wednesday night, how starting with Moses, God throughout all of the Bible has shown Jesus Christ here and how this picture of the sacrificial lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. And he works through the whole thing in the Old Testament. 
And then he gets to the point in Acts chapter 2 where he says, hey, this long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament that you've been waiting for, he came and you guys killed him. Just like you did the Old Testament prophets. Just like you guys did to everybody who preached this book that you didn't like. And so he's telling them all of this. And he says, look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of where? Verse 36. Israel. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, who's the they? Jews who specifically killed Christ. They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren. Now we know from this that these guys are not saved. When they call Peter brethren, they are not referring to him as a brother in Christ. They're referring to him as a fellow Jew. Is someone trying to hook up to the phone or to the Apple TV? Fun. It's where the TV was off. Anyway, sorry. They're saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? Another side note, if you want to write down Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, he asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? They don't say that here. They say, what must we do? The question they're asking isn't what do we need to do to be saved. The question they're asking is, what on earth is going on with this TV? They're saying, what on earth do we do now that our Messiah is gone? And then he says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins that ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you're taking notes, write this down, because you might be able to share this this week with someone who goes to one of these churches. It's not teaching you how to be saved in the New Testament. If so, we would find a verse similar like this all throughout in Paul's letters, but we don't. Peter's pointing out the historical significance that their long-awaited Messiah had just been killed by them. This answered the question, what must we do? It was a special pardoning that was needed just for them. It's what John the Baptist did when he came on the scene to cleanse the nation of Israel of their sins of killing the prophets. That's what this is for. Does everybody, everybody clear on that? This is them being pardoned for the crime of killing Christ. It is not about salvation. If so, we'd find it all throughout the New Testament. And if so, he'd be talking about for salvation. He's saying, no, you guys want to be pardoned of your crime of killing Christ? Here's what you do. And then he would go on to what is needed for them to be saved. All right. Moving on. So that's the near context. Secondly, we have the remote context. Considering things around. What is the entire book? You guys got to get this down. Do you guys have these notes on your sheet? These aren't blank, right? Okay. The book of Acts. This is a transitional book. 
Transitional's your blank. Is a transitional book that bridges John to Romans, Jew to Gentile, Israel to the church. This book is going from point A to point B. The book of Acts is simply just telling you guys what happened. What happened after Christ? How did the church start getting formed? How did Gentiles all of a sudden start getting saved when God was always to go to the Jew first, the Jew first, go to the lost sheep of Israel when Christ sent out his disciples on a mission trip? It's always the Jew first. How do these Gentiles come aboard? And who on earth is this guy Paul that I hear about in all the rest of the New Testament? The book of Acts is transitional, going from one place to the other. It's kind of like transitioning gears on a manual car. If you stay in the transition, in transitioning from one shift to the next, what's going to happen to your car? You're going to stall. It's the same thing with this book. The reason I mention that is because many, many churches take a lot of their doctrine from the book of Acts and they stall. They stall. That's where you get things like baptismal regeneration, tongues, healing. Again, we'll cover all this in this class later on. Next, 1 Corinthians. You got to know this. This book is Paul's rebuke of a church that is carnal and fleshly in almost every area. Why is that important? Because again, tongues are mentioned here. But when you understand the fact that this entire letter is Paul ripping them to shreds because they don't know on earth how they're supposed to behave and how they're supposed to act in the church, it makes more sense. Not to mention you have 1 Corinthians 13. Don't you guys love going to weddings and hearing 1 Corinthians 13 read no. about charity and about love? Okay, now you guys know. Don't ever invite Andy to your wedding. Don't you guys love that? The only problem is that chapter... It's Paul ripping them to shreds like, you guys want to talk about love? You guys don't know the first thing about love. That entire chapter, it's all a rebuke. He's telling them how off they are on it. you got to be careful when you go to that chapter, when you go to that book, because if you don't understand it in its proper context, you might end up with some false doctrines, some false teachings. And the book of Hebrews. You want to mark it down. It's not in your notes, but mark this down. The book of Hebrews... It's another transitional book in your Bible. If you're taking notes, there's only three transitional books in your entire Bible. Acts, Hebrews, and Matthew. Matthew, you're going from the Old Testament to the New. You're skipping about 400 years of history from the Old Testament to Christ's birth. Hebrews is going from the church age to the tribulation period. It's written by Paul. Although, if anybody's read the book of Hebrews recently, you know what you find out? There's not one mention of who the author is in the entire book. Why is that? Why would Jews want to hear anything that Paul has to say, given that he was a traitor to them? Maybe it's because God is going to use this book of Hebrews in a future connotation down the road in the tribulation period. 
on your outline. This book was written to the Jews by Paul during his three and a half years out in the wilderness as he comes to the full understanding of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and pictures and establishing a better covenant that supersedes the Old Testament covenant. This book will be the key book for Jews to come to saving faith in Christ during the tribulation period. That's important because, once again, many churches will take verses out of context from that book to say, you can lose your salvation. Now, if they show you these verses, you might look at it and be like, man, when I look at that, it does actually seem so. How would I be able to answer them? How would you? We'll see one here in a little bit. And then other. You guys understand these books in their proper context. Genesis to Joshua. You've seen this before. Genesis, it's the book of beginnings that ends with God's man dead in a coffin. Then you go right into Exodus. God's people are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Leviticus, after they are delivered out of Egypt, they're into this wilderness and God gives them the law so that they can, God's people are joined on your outline. God's people are joined to God and the priests are established while living in the wilderness. Book of Numbers, God's people wander in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Deuteronomy, God gave the law a second time and this time they should, that they should serve him out of love and not duty. And last, you got the book of Joshua. Joshua, whose name means Jesus, we just went through this on Sunday mornings in the main service, leads God's people to conquer the promised land. Those books right there, it's a picture of your life. It's a picture of salvation. You were born dead, Genesis. You were delivered by the blood of a spotless lamb, Exodus. You were given God's word to live by in this wilderness. And if you live by unbelief and not by rightly dividing the word of truth, you'll be wandering in this life aimlessly, without purpose, without passion. And so that's why God shows you the word of God again to get you to rededicate your life, sometimes through the form of camp so that you can finally achieve what God has intended for you. You understand those books of the Bible and how they fit into the overall plans and purposes of God. Those books will make sense. Then you have Ezra to Proverbs. If Genesis to Joshua is the restoration of the kingdom of God, this is the restoration of the kingdom of heaven. Because in the book of Ezra, you have the Jews returning to their land and the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. Do you know that Israel returning in 1948 to having their own land was the last prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church? Do you understand that since 1948, there are literally no more prophecies left to be fulfilled? This book, everything that is said therein, has already come to fruition. God just needed His people, the Jews, back in their homeland. And it happened in 1948. We are on some borrowed time. Yep. But in Ezra, a very similar thing happens. They were dispersed all throughout. And then through a proclamation that was made by a foreign Gentile king, they get to come home. That's the book of Ezra. And then as soon as they're home, man, we got to start building the temple. We got to rebuild our walls of defense. 
And that's what the book of Nehemiah is all about right after it. The Jews continue to return to their land and the defense network is rebuilt. That's why when the nation of Israel was hit by all of their surrounding enemies in the Arabic world in the 60s, they survived. They whipped their tail because they got their defenses set up. And their allies, America, Britain, stabilized them and gave them all kinds of weapons to help them do it. Then you have the book of Esther, right after the book of Nehemiah, which is all about a Gentile bride being replaced with a Jewish bride. Picture of the rapture. Picture of what's going to happen to Israel during the tribulation period. And as soon as the book of Esther's done, you have the book of Job which is a time where God's man goes through great tribulation. And after that, when the tribulation is done, and you hear about this wicked Leviathan, then you have the book of Psalms, where King David takes the throne from Saul, a picture of the Antichrist, and is the king on the throne in Jerusalem, leading the worship of God. And then you have the book of Proverbs, which is the reign of the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ, the living word. That's what's next for us. Lined up in the Old Testament in that order. Even though those books happened in different chronological times, God has structured His Word to be set up just like that. You have an understanding of, those, of how this fits into the theme of the entire Bible? The king and the kingdom? The restitution of all things? Those books will make sense to you. You won't get caught up on passages. And Daniel and Revelation, you can understand that as far as their history, where they fit in. We don't have time to cover all that. Ugh. <sighs> All right, this last page, here's what we're going to do. We will cover one of them, but here's a few things. Take some notes here. Just like last week, I'm going to give you guys this as your assignment for homework. Don't fret it. You're going to have fun with these. Or at least you should. You have your notes here. They should help you in case you get hung up. Scribble out Acts 138 on the top there. Passages taken commonly taken out of context. Scribble out Acts 138 and put down John 3, verses 5 to 8. Number one, because Acts 138 doesn't exist in your Bible. It's supposed to be 238, but we already covered that. All right, so you're going to do uh, Mark 16, 16 to 18, John 3, verses 5 to 8. Uh, the 19, 1 to 7, that should say Acts. Do you guys have that on your outline, or is mine different? Yeah. Okay. And then Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. We're, that's the one we're going to do. Go ahead and turn over there. We'll end with this. The other three, that's one that you guys will do. I can't wait for you guys to do this. I can't wait to see some of your answers next week. Some of these will be fun. All right, Hebrews 6. Let's read verse 4 to 6. Can I get a reader for those three verses? Caleb. Hebrews what? 6, 4 to 6. Never mind. He didn't have his Bible open. Somebody else. <laughs> Megan, thank you. 
For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and remained partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For all of these passages you do this week, you have to ask yourself these two questions, and I'm asking you now. What does this passage appear to be saying? What does the passage actually say based upon the context? So, with what Megan just read, what you guys just read, what does this passage appear to be saying? Megan? Is it that you can Mm-hmm. He says that something's impossible. What is it? It's impossible if you've been enlightened. Well, Christ is the light of the world, and Christ lives in me, so I'm enlightened. And I've tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, Ephesians 2.8.9 says that salvation is a gift. Yeah, I've received a gift. And are made partakers of the Holy Ghost. i got the Holy Ghost inside of me. Alright, so something's impossible if I have all those things. And tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Yeah, I'm in my Bible. I've tasted all of that. If they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put them to an open shame. It's impossible for that to happen in your life. For some of you in this room... Yikes, if that doctrine is true based upon what it's saying here. But let's consider some things. What's the most obvious one right out of the gate based upon what we covered? Consider the remote context. You can look back at your notes. It's an open book exam. Say it louder. It's in Hebrews. Hebrews. Who is this letter written to based upon the very name itself? Hebrews. Jews. And when you understand the book as a whole and that this fits into the tribulation period, not the church age, when you understand that about this book, it helps make sense. It helps trigger some things. Okay, so this isn't talking about me in the church age. This is talking about Hebrews. But man, what do I do with that? There's something else too, and again, for the sake of time, we'll just go to it. But if you even just, not only the remote context of understanding Hebrew, or Hebrews, not Hebrew, Hebrews, but even the near context, if you just keep reading, you know what you'll find? Look at verse 18. That by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Man, I have hope in Christ, and I lay hold unto Him. I got a strong consolation because of God that my sins have been taken care of. And it's impossible for God to lie. He gave me His, his eternal life. Verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Man, you know what? I hear this verse mentioned all the time in Christianity. That Jesus Christ is my hope. He's my anchor. He's the rock that I'm anchored to. I see t-shirts all the time about this. Caleb's brother has all of them. (laughs) Ray's dad has all of them. I see shirts like this all the time. I, I hear about this in Christianity all the time. That Christ is my anchor. He's my hope. How can I not be anchored to it anymore? And that presents the problem with the book of Hebrews. Problem, quote-unquote. 
For as many verses as you find in the book of Hebrews that says you can lose your salvation, you'll find equally just as many verses that say you are eternally secure. If you enter into a personal relationship with Christ and your sins are forgiven and you're saved, you'll find verses in this book that say you can lose that. You'll find verses in this book that say you can't lose that. Which is it? Understand the theme of the book. Understand how it fits into the bigger theme of the Bible. Understand how God's going to use this book in the context of the future events. And you know what? Man, aside from that, devotionally speaking, how do you spiritually, practically, you know what? Anyone who's received Christ, you're going to have fruit that will cast out all doubt. But if you find yourself not walking, not walking properly, it causes you to re-examine some things. That's how those verses can be uh, an impact to your life, devotionally speaking. I'm trying not to use these phrases that we all commonly use because that's actually a rule of Bible study, doctrinal, devotional. So doctrinally speaking, these passages aren't written to you because this is to Hebrews. For a predominantly Gentile church in the church age, we have a slew of verses all throughout the Pauline epistles that show that when you enter into a personal relationship with Christ, you are eternally secure. You are saved forever, no matter how much sin you commit. However, where Hebrews does kind of help from a devotional stance, if you find yourself constantly falling away, constantly walking away from Christ, not showing up to church for months on end, getting into all kinds of sin, and it just happens again and again and again in your life, that doesn't mean you're not saved. It should just cause you to question, is Christ really my hope? Am I really anchored to Him? Or have I been faking it all along? Have I believed in vain? That's how those verses apply to us in a spiritual sense today. So consider those things, especially if you're one who's constantly living that way. All right, you guys clear on these three verses for next week? Have fun with them. If you can't figure it out, don't worry about it. Call each other. Hey, what did you get? Oh, really? Can you help show that to me, how you got that? And we'll come back next week. We'll have some fun with it. All right. Let's...